greetings. Uh, it's good to be back from the uh, southwest campus of NLCC. That's what we're calling it now. Um, we had a, uh, a great time. It was great to go and recharge our batteries a little bit for a couple weeks and to be a blessing to, uh, to Josh and Shauna for sure. And um, just encourage anybody to, uh, to, to embark on that from time to time. I say that only because um, I'm kind of the, probably the least prone to actually go anywhere and do anything. And uh, so I'll confess that up front. My wife's in the back nodding her head saying, Amen, praise Jesus. <laughs> He's finally getting it. But we had a great, uh, great time, a great time and a great trip. And, uh, we have four weeks until Palm Sunday, five until Resurrection Sunday. In the time we have left, and we've, uh, we've finished uh, the book of 1 Corinthians here in the, uh, several weeks ago, in the last couple of weeks, uh, Tim Weeby's been preaching out of Jesus' favorite place on earth. Um, I was kind of been praying for actually several months on where to go next, preaching wise, and uh, the book of First Timothy is kind of just kind of kept sticking to my mind. And uh, this last week, we were sitting in church in Molokai, and uh, they had a guest speaker. Uh, he's not really a guest to Molokai Baptist, but he's he's one of their uh, deacons, uh, Vi Suyamalo's a friend of ours that we met there several years ago. And uh, to our surprise, he got up and gave a message on faith last week. Um, this is not that same message, but it was his message was definitely inspiring to me and confirmation for me to go to First Timothy. First um, Timothy is an interesting book, and First, Second Timothy, and Titus actually are are epistles that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote right at the end of his life. Uh, they were perhaps some of the last things that that he had penned down, and um, he penned these these three letters, two to Timothy, one to Titus. Timothy was, was uh, <coughs> working in Ephesus, in the church in Ephesus. Titus was in Crete. Uh, these two fellows were, were Paul's protégés. They were, had been discipled by him. Really, Acts chapter 20 gives us a great backdrop into Paul's parting comments and his thoughts for the believers in Ephesus. And I'd kind of like to start there if we could. If you turn to Acts chapter 20, we'll read just a few verses. I'm just going to pull a, a piece out of it, an excerpt out of it. And uh, Paul talking there to the leadership in Ephesus. And in verse 25, he says these words, and he says, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. He's saying, you're, you're not going to see me anymore. Uh, God has a different plan for me. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. For For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. It's kind of uh, the the meat and potatoes of Paul's concern for the the church there in Ephesus. And those concerns were kind of twofold in a sense. And you can really draw them out of both this passage in Acts 20 or the 
epistle that he wrote to the church in Ephesus, or actually what he said to Timothy, if you can kind of combine those three pieces, there was, there was obvious threats. There was internal threats, there was intellectual threats uh, that would either come in or would rise up from there. And those, when I say intellectual threats, I'm talking about uh, people that come in with fine-sounding arguments and, and, and kind of lofty words, and they come across really intellectual, and, and he's going to get into that in this letter that he writes to Timothy as we go along. But he says, be careful of those threats. He also, the second concern that he had was for confusion. There was uh, moral confusion and doctrinal confusion that he was concerned might happen there. Moral confusion being people that were not behaving properly. So they had a moral, they had a moral issue or a variety of moral issues that they weren't following Christ the way that Christ said to follow Christ. So it's a moral issue. They were excusing sin or they were not taking up the responsibilities that God had given them. Uh, whatever the case was, there was some poor behavior. He was concerned about that. And of course he was also concerned about the confusion doctrinally with these people that would rise up and be false teachers. So you have moral confusion, behaving pr- uh, improperly, and doctrinal confusion, be believing improperly. Um, so in this writing to, to, to Timothy, Paul is reminding him of these concerns so that he will make sure that the church is really bathed in the scriptures, the truth of God's word, and so then it can avoid these dangers. That's the essence of Paul's concern. There's a, there's a, a couple of things in the f- for the few weeks we're going to be looking at this that we should really look at in there's kind of some overarching themes that go over all three of these epistles, but they definitely apply to First Timothy. And that is, is uh, uh, Paul is essentially telling Timothy to persevere, to persevere, to continue on, and to endure. Those are kind of the three words that really kind of stand out, that, and the three, the three concepts that he's really laying out there, that you need to persevere, don't give up. Don't give up. You need to continue with what you're doing. Continue with why I sent you there. Continue with, with uh, staying in the Word of God. Continue to bathe this church in the Word of God, in the Scriptures. Otherwise, otherwise it's going to be easy, the inference is, it's going to be easy for d- false doctrine to, to creep in and to rise up. So you need to continue. You need to continue. And then you need to endure in that continuing. You need to stay with it. You need to stay with it. There's something to be said about endurance. And Paul's going to talk about that in this first chapter of First Timothy. And we see these themes come alive within the personal nature and the personal encouragement and the tone that Paul has for this letter. Let's dive right into it. Let's get right into First Timothy chapter 1. I'll read the first verse. I'll get there with you. First Timothy 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God and our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ, our hope. Paul begins by identifying his letter, kind of that customary fashion where he, he identifies himself first. Usually in the way that we write a letter, we write who it's going to. But in that day and in that culture, they wrote who's writing the letter at the top. So he identifies himself and his qualifications first of all. Then he identifies Timothy in a very particular way. Look at verse 2. To Timothy, a true son in the faith, 
grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. There was that personal connection that they had. Uh, many people and scholars believe that Timothy was as much of a son, uh, a biological son, as perhaps Paul ever had. That's how close their connection, their relationship is. There was a personal connection. So he calls him a true son, but it's not just a true son. He's not talking just about their personal relationship. He qualifies it this way. He puts it in a category. He says, a true son in the faith. A true son in the faith. That's different than just saying, you know, if, if, if Robbie were here and that's my true son, I would be correct. I would be correct in saying that because we're biological, we're related. Right? I was there. Seen it happen. I can testify. Right? But a true son in the faith puts, puts Timothy in a category that's different than just biology, just different than just DNA. It puts Timothy in a category to say, we're in this together. So there's the personal connection, but there's the faith connection as well. And this is expression is specific to their shared faith in Christ. And so in the faith, there's uh, six times, we're going to look at six, six expressions uh, where the word faith is used. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually categorize them and take a little liberty Categorize them this way. There's six faith attitudes. Paul had an attitude toward Timothy here where he uses as a true son in the faith. That, was, that shows an attitude of how much he cared about this young fella. How much he had poured time and energy and, and effort into raising him up as a disciple. That alone is encouraging to me. That's, that alone, I mean, we could like just stop right there and talk about that for 30 minutes and, and we probably could have... Uh, a full plate, right? That's the attitude, the faith attitude that we should have towards one another, whether you're trying to latch on to somebody to teach you the Bible, somebody to disciple you, or whether you're a mature believer and you're, you're out there saying, all right, I, I need to be effective. I need to be influential in people's lives. I need, to, I need to spend time with people, right? And I need to help them learn the Word of God. There's a faith connection here that can't be missed, it can't be missed at all. So this faith attitude is they were in it together, come what may. I like to use this word, uh, this phrase, they were in it to win it. You're going to see that at the very end of this chapter. There's a particular uh, sentence, a particular uh, picture that Paul paints for Timothy, saying, we're in this thing to win, not just get by. For too long, the church has kind of just gotten by, and the things that have happened and, and the things that are going on in our culture and the times that we live in, especially more recently, uh, we can't be just in the mindset of, well, we just need to just get by as a church. We need to thrive. God calls his people to thrive. And I'm not preaching some, you know, prosperity gospel or any of that. I'm saying we need to thrive in our faith. We need to be growing in our faith. We need to be maturing in our faith. We need to be maturing and growing as a community. And that's kind of what he's talking about. True son of the faith. They were in it together. No matter what happens, they were in it to win it. It's been said really that uh, in comparison of Timothy and, and Titus, and I won't speak too much more about Titus, but I did run across this in studying this out, that uh, Timothy was, uh, <clears throat> perhaps, or there's a, 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 a thought out there that Timothy was timid. That Timothy was a, a, a lot more timid 
in his personality, and Titus was really bold. So Timothy kind of gets two letters. He gets, you know, he gets two pieces of encouragement. And, and the language that Paul writes to Timothy, the things that he says, and we'll get into that in a minute, kind of reflect this attitude that Timothy needed to be, continue to be encouraged. He needed to be, continue to be built up. He needed to continue to be reminded about certain things that had happened in the past, where Titus was like super bold, and Paul could write to him perhaps a lot more just kind of factually. Um, Perhaps maybe this is because of their age difference too. We're not exactly sure of that. But either way, Timothy gets twice the encouragement. Uh, He probably needed it. Paul goes on to say in verse 3, and after talking about a true son of the faith, in verse 2, I'll just reread verse 2, to Timothy, a true son of the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Very customary greeting coming from Paul says in verse 3, And I urged you when I went to, into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. Remain in Ephesus. God had a very specific word for Timothy, and that was this. Stay put. Stay put. Don't start to wander. Don't start to go think you need to go here, go there. But to stay put. Stay put in Ephesus. Stay there. He says, use the word remain. You need to remain in Ephesus. Six reasons, perhaps, and uh, some verses to go with it. Six thoughts and reasons why he should remain and to minister there. One, we'll see this in verse 3 and 3 through 7. The church needs the truth. The church needs the truth. We need the truth. We need to be reminded of the truth. So we need to remain. The church needs the truth. The second one, ministry happens in hard places. Verses 8 through 11. Ministry happens in hard places. For way too long, it's been too easy in the church to just grab onto a ministry. And this is a, this is a, this is a critique. I'll just put it out there what it is. It's been too easy to shop around to get involved in ministry where it's easy. Because it has been easy. So if it's something you're not really, well, I don't really, I don't. And then we find an avenue where it works good for us. Ephesus was not working good for Timothy. It was a hard place to minister. But God said to remain. We need to rethink. We need to rethink how we engage in ministry because if your primary filter or if my primary filter is just to engage in the areas where it's just really easy or it's real natural for me or real natural for you, we need to rethink that. I'm not, I'm not convinced that that's biblical thinking. Not all the time. I'm not saying that everything has to be hard and we need to, you know, uh, kind of be... Uh, What's the word? Kind of self-deprecating and searching for ministry. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying if we're avoiding the tough places, we might be avoiding the places that God wants us to dive in. Ministry is hard. Ministry can be very hard. Uh, I can also say it can be very rewarding. It can be very exciting. So don't avoid it. Ministry happens in hard places. It's kind of the nature of the business. We need to thicken our skin a little bit, I think. God uses unworthy people is the third one. God uses unworthy people. We'll get that to that in a little bit. But Paul's kind of talking about himself in verses 12 through 16, where he brings out his own history. He's reminding himself, reminding Timothy of his own story. Uh, the reality and, and reasons to remain is, is that uh, I'm sure there was times where Timothy didn't feel real worthy to, to be ministering in Ephesus. 
But that's not the point. It's not a matter of your worthiness. And if that's a filter for ministry, you're probably off to a wrong start already. God uses unworthy people. If you're feeling unworthy, well, um, God's wanting to put you in the game. The next one is is that we serve a great God. Verse 17 says that straightforwardly. We serve a great God. A reason to to remain in ministry is we serve a great God. He's got it all under control. Not only that, but we're in a battle and we cannot surrender. Verse 18. We're in a battle. Timothy was in a battle. Paul uses that type of, you know, militaristic type of language. You're in a battle here, bro. So get ready. You cannot lose. We're in it. You like how I slipped that in there? I've been on the island, so if my language, if I start to use the word bro, or the variation of bro is bra, you'll know where it came from. I kept saying that a little bit, and Tammy looked at me one night, sitting at the table, she's like, she just kind of did one of those. Hey, we're in a battle. We can't surrender. Verse 18, the last one I want to talk about, the last reason, last reason to remain into ministers, not everyone will endure. And that's sobering. That makes us, uh, makes our heart uh, skip a step a little bit, you know. Like not everybody's going to make it. Not everybody's going to endure. Not everybody's going to stick around for whatever reason. Okay? So, but it's still a reason for us it was a reason for Timothy to remain and to minister right where God had him to stay put. Here's a reason. We'll start with that last one. Here's a reason that you need to remain. Connection back to Acts 20. Look at the rest of the verse 3. I'll really read 3. As I urged you, when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they preach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables, and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. That's the reason why Timothy needed to stay. That's why Paul encouraged him. Stay put, remain right there, because false doctrine is always linked to some, uh, in some way of having some special insight, some special knowledge, right? Some special way to see a situation. That's kind of the, the nature of, of false doctrine, uh, false teaching, and, and here it is, it's always kind of sight-related. So people are always kind of just trying to pull you in a little bit and so that you can see what they think they know is special, and so then you can side up with them and see that same thing, and the reality is, is that, that that's, that's kind of one of the, the hidden natures and the hidden dangers of false doctrine the reality is second corinthians 5 7 says hey we walk by faith and not by sight so we have to accept on the front end as christ followers that there's things that we're not going to see intentionally that we're not going to see that we just have to trust god for the results and we have to trust god for the results and we need to hang in that spot of just trusting god i don't understand it god i don't understand what's going on in this situation i'm not sure why this happened at work or that happened at home but i'm going to trust you and i and i can't see what you're going to do and that false doctrine type of thing the 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 uh, hidden components are always trying to get people to shift and say, well, if you can just see it here, then you'll understand why that's happening. I don't think that's how God works. 
I don't think that's how it works at all. The faith attitude that comes out here is true instruction from God always has a faith component. It always has faith incorporated into it. It's not about what we can see. It is about how we trust. And that's the essence of faith. If you want a quick uh, biblical definition of the word faith, go to Hebrews chapter uh, 12. Is it 12? 11? Chapter 11, read verses 1 and 2. Let's just do it. I'll get out of my notes for a minute. Yeah. Now faith is the substance of the things hoped for, for the evidence of things not seen. That's usually where people stop with that definition. But uh, the writer of Hebrews gives us an example in verse 2. For by it, so by faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. So you get a definition and an example, all wrapped in two verses. By it, the elders, the church elders, received a good testimony. So they're living by faith. Guess what? Everybody around starts seeing them live by faith. And they end up with a good testimony in the end. Because they were trusting God despite the circumstances around them. So the second faith attitude is true instruction from God always has a faith component. There's always a piece there that we just need to trust. Essentially, that's what faith means. You're trusting in something or someone. Absolutely. Our faith is in God. Our faith is in Christ. Trusting in Him. Absolutely. Verse 5, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. From a sincere faith. What commandment is Paul talking about here? Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't really matter where you start. Uh, you could start in the Old Testament. You can work to the New Testament. Paul tells the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 24, that the purpose of the law is to bring us to Christ, that the law is a tutor. He uses that word in some translations is a tutor, it brings us to Christ, so he's talking about the Old Testament law, that we would be justified by faith. Jesus sums it up in the New Testament, love God and love others. So he takes all of that and just, just presses it through a funnel and gets just a single sentence, love God and love your neighbor. You want it all condensed? That's what it all amounts to. You want to look at the Ten Commandments, you want to look at all of the Old Testament laws, we're doing this chronological read, and, and we're right in the, we're, we're almost to, I'm a few days behind, but we're almost to Deuteronomy, so we're going to get it all over again. But all of that that we've listened to now since January 1st is all condensed into two thoughts, love God and love one another. While we were on the island, and the guy that I mentioned that spoke this last Sunday, Vi Suyamalo, um, he's a very interesting guy. He's a Samoan, Samoan fellow, works there on the island, uh, very involved in the church. But he's very involved in his particular little community of Mauna Loa. Mauna Loa would probably be uh, about the size combined of Addy and Blue Creek together. And it sits on the far west side of the island, up on this high ridge. And uh, generally speaking... Generally speaking, the people there are pretty poor. And Vi always has three or four or five kids with him whenever he's doing something. If he's going to go fishing, if he's going to go lay net out in the reef, guess what? He's got three or four or five kids. 
if we were butchering, and we butchered five hogs while we were there, two one weekend, three the next, guess what? Guess where those kids are? Those kids are with Vi. And sometimes it's a few different kids here or there. Uh, but that's his ministry. They open up their home there in Mauna Loa uh, one night a week for all the kids to come. They have fun. They play games. They feed them a meal, which is a big port, part of it. Um, and he gives a little devotional. He gives them something out of the Bible. And he has these four. He, we, were, we were, this is the craziest thing to, to think about what we did. But we had, we were working this pig. We were scalding this hog, butchering it down to do an emu, which is where they cook it underground. And all these kids are engaged in the process and swirling around there and, and uh, getting a little rambunctious. And, and Vi just, he's just got this deep voice. He's like, hey, come here. And all these kids are right to him. What's rule number one? Love God, they say. What's rule number two? Love one another. What's rule number three? If you don't work, you don't eat. I'm liking it already. The fourth one blew me away. Because I, I couldn't help but bust out in laughter. He says, what's rule number four? And all these kids look up. Don't stand around and look pretty. <laughs> right? And this is the four things that he keeps instilling into these kids whose some of their parents are incarcerated. Some of them are living with their grandparents. Some of them are living with aunt and uncle that don't care. They're on the streets. They're poor, but they're not unloved. And he's showing Christ's love to them, teaching them the Bible, teaching them these four things, and teaching them not to stand around and just look pretty. These are just kind of ragtag kids. I thought, man alive, number four. That got me, right? The summary of this verse here, verse five, purpose of the commandment, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. That's, that, that, that's, that's, where, that's where the law, that's where Jesus takes his people. The last one there, from a sincere faith, that faith attitude is this. Our faith must be. And sometimes this is a decision point for us. Our faith must be true and honest. It must be unwavering. And it has to be rooted in solid doctrine. Not waving around, that's his concern with this false doctrine that's going on there in Ephesus. Not waving around from one thing to the next, chasing after this or that or the other. It needs to be rooted in solid doctrine. And the evidence of that is pure love, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Let's look at verse 6. A little warning for those who drift. Verse 6 says, from <clears throat> so from a sincere faith, uh, verse 6, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law. So Paul kind of gives in verse 5 this preemptive strike about the law. These guys want to desire to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. So he's pretty much given a brief on how far off base they are to, to start with. He says in verse 8, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly, for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators and sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, 
And if there be, <coughs> if there any other thing that is contra- contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel, the blessed God which was committed, uh, the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. Paul really lays out in a way and uses a few different uh, components here, but he really lays out, he, he, he's kind of given us a brief on the Ten Commandments. In, in short, he uses a few different words. Uh, but it's hard, <coughs> it's hard not to see that if you're a murderer of a father or mother that you're not honoring your father or mother. Just one example. The reality is, is that law ca- the law cannot bring us to righteousness, but the gospel does. The gospel Christ brings us into that righteous relationship with the Father. That's why it's called glorious. That's why it says according to the glorious gospel. No more strain and strife. No more trying to do it a certain way. No more chasing after rules and regulations. It's simply coming to faith in Christ. Trusting in Jesus. Receiving from Him salvation. That's why Paul calls it here in verse 11. He calls it the glorious gospel. It's nothing else has, has ever been like that. Nothing else has, has ever been uh, uh, presented in such a way. Verse 12. And I thank Christ our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first... Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul takes a little trip down memory lane of his own history, his own story that's filled with twists and turns. If you recall, Acts 9 gives us the story of Paul's conversion from Judaism to Christianity. He was the number one enforcer. I like using that picture. I like using that word. It's kind of a hockey term in a sense that uh, he was the, in hockey, if somebody's getting rough with their players, they throw the enforcer out on the ice and then he's the guy that's out pounding the other team, checking them into the boards. He's the enforcer, they call it. And that was Paul's role and he volunteered for it. He said, hey, put me in, put me in, put me in. You, know, you can read all about it in the book of Acts. But in Acts 9, on his way to Damascus, God got a hold of Paul, stopped him in his tracks, blinded him. The whole story is there. I encourage you to read Acts 9. If you're curious who this Apostle Paul is, this guy that writes the majority of the New Testament. Now, all these years later, an old man, looking back over his life, looking back over all the change, the trials, looking back over all the persecution that he had endured, looking back over all the churches that he had started, all the conversions, the people that come to faith in Christ as he's preaching out in the uh, uttermost parts of the known world, 
all of that, all of that, he gives these two faith attitudes, kind of looking back over his own history, based on his own history. The first one there, the first of these two, which would be number four, faith attitude, is when we realize that Jesus is all in for us, that's what he realized on the road to Damascus. Jesus was all in for him. And then we respond with a surrendered life. Then we're counted as faithful. That's not an event. That's a, a, a summary of a timeline. Paul couldn't have been counted faithful right there on the road. But now all these years later, he looks and says, uh, he's thanking Jesus who's enabled him, who's empowered him to be even in ministry who's counting him faithful. God's counting him faithful. He's looking back over that, that surrendered life. We can be counted faithful as well. It's not an event. Christianity, salvation is not an event so much uh, in a lot of ways. And our walk is not an event. It's a journey. I kind of cringe when people tell me their salvation testimony and there's a long break of time in between then and now or they go back to when they were in summer camp and they threw a stick in the fire or they you know they talked with their counselor but and I and I want to know all right so what happened between then and now where 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 has it gone for you from then and now and and unfortunately unfortunately too many times there will be this little build-up and then a huge drop. And then a lot of life and a lot of heartache and a lot of pain and a lot of turmoil until they get to the point that's like, I can't do this anymore. Maybe this is your testimony. It was partially mine. That's why I can, that's why I can relate so much with it. It was partially mine. That's how it was for me as a teenager. Then you get to this low spot where you, you, you're, you're, at, you're, you're down to really asking the tough questions. And you're at a spot where you want the truth. Not something that just makes you feel good. Not something that's going to put a band-aid on your problem. But you want the truth. And when people get there, then you start to see a climb if, should they surrender. They cry out, that's right, amen. Amen. I also believe that God wants to kind of keep people out of the hospital as much as he wants to patch up those that end up there. So Paul ended up with a surrendered life. He was counted faithful. The fifth faith attitude is this, is despite the sins of the past, despite all that he talked about in himself, he he puts himself in that same category that he just had talked about, about the reason why the law was created. He says he's a blasphemer. Well, that's worthy of death in the Old Testament ways, in the Old Testament law. Uh, He was a persecutor. He was an insolent man. But he says, I obtained mercy. And the grace of our Lord Jesus was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. The fifth faith attitude is despite all the sins of the past, Jesus' grace, Jesus' faith, and Christ's love are exceedingly abundant today. They're exceedingly abundant. If that's what you need, if that's, if, and, and, and we all need this. Let's just, let's just level the floor for a second. We all need that. 
And Christ's mercy, his grace, is exceedingly abundant right here today. There's this hidden gem here, gem here in verse 16. Paul was so convinced, so full of faith in what God had done by extending grace to him that he believed God's patience with him would have a running effect in believers' lives even to this day. Do we see that? I'll reread it because it involves you and I. Look at verse 16. He's talking kind of uh, futuristically, if, if you will. He says, however, for this reason, for all that had happened, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering. People ask me recently, how long do I need to endure? I said, I don't know. If you can get, a, if you can get an ending date on long-suffering, if, if, you can, if you can find a definition for long-suffering that has brackets and a start and an end date that's definite, I'd like to see it. But I don't see the Bible describing long-suffering with a start and a finish. I think it's just a matter of an endurance. We're called to endure, and Jesus endured Paul's craziness, his insolence, his blasphemy, his persecution. Then he showed him grace. And he showed him grace, he showed him long-suffering, as there it is, as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for eternal life. You and I fit. If you're a Christ follower, you and I fit into that category in Scripture. That what Jesus did for Paul had a purpose clear to this very moment for Christ followers in 2020 right here this Sunday morning. It's exciting. He believed that God's patience with him would have this running effect. That's faith. That's crazy. It's crazy faith. No wonder he bursts out in praise in the next sentence. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God alone. Uh, to God alone, who is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He believed in faith that God's plan for him would have this butterfly, butterfly effect. If you guys understand what a butterfly effect is, uh, it's, it's similar to this. So if, you, if, if you're out at the lake and you drop a rock in the water, the ripples go in every direction. And they just continue to go. Right? That's that butterfly effect that he would have a butterfly effect to this present day. Verse 18. Last faith attitude. Verse 18 says, This <coughs> charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, having suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, I was reading through this, <clears throat> and when I was uh, praying about First Timothy, I actually kind of forgot about this uh, particular sentence about Hymenaeus and Alexander. And if you recall, that's kind of where we started in the first chapter of Corinthians. And uh, I kind of found it was kind of intriguing in my own mind anyway, that in, in the beginning sermons of two different series, Paul's turning somebody over to Satan <laughs> with consistency, right? In 1 Corinthians 1, and then here in 1 Timothy 1. And uh, it's a picture to me, I guess, of how important it was to him what was going on. But the ending of this chapter 1, Paul's reminder to Timothy, he's reminding Timothy of these responsibilities he has of leadership there in Ephesus. 
Remember in the beginning, of, uh, Paul referred to him as a true son in the faith. And now he lays out these responsibilities like a father would to his son. And he says, you can uh, do... He says, Timothy, you can do this. A lot like a father would say to their own son. Here's the task. Any questions? All right. Go get it done. Go get it done. That's the type of relationship that they had. Younger folks in that sense, in the church and in our homes, uh, they need to be discipled in the faith in order to bear the weight of the heavy ministry that is ahead of them. I'll say that again. Our younger folks, these younger men and women, they need to be, they must be, I'll, I'll, I'll make it an imperative, they must be discipled in a sense that they can handle the heavy weight in the future. Uh, that's part of what Paul had built into Timothy as he discipled him. That's part of why he's writing to him, to encourage him again, to encourage him again. You can do this. You can do this. He wouldn't have handed it over to him if he didn't think that he was prepared. But that's not absent of encouragement. Some of the verses that kind of go along with that, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, 2 Timothy 1, 6, and 1 Timothy 1, 18, are all verses where Paul is reminding Timothy of his call to ministry. The things that were said about you, the, we laid hands on you and we prayed for you, you were prophesied, these things, that's what he says here, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you. So Paul's reminding him and saying, don't forget the things that have been said about you by the Lord. It was all preparation for today. It was all preparation for what was going on there. We have to uh, gravitate a lot more to that type of mentality within our own ranks and within the church today here, especially in the days that we live in. I want to stop and remind somebody to go get the kids because I'm almost done. Our young kids have a song that they want to sing after the service here, after the message. The reason why preparation is so important is he uses this, this word here that <clears throat> by them, by the things that God has said about you, Timothy, you may wage the good warfare. You may wage the good warfare. We're pushing into Satan's domain with the gospel of Christ, in other words. So, so there's a good war to be fought that Paul's reminding Timothy, hey, these are good things. These are good things. We need to keep pushing out. We need to p- keep uh, uh, expanding our borders as, as it were. We need to keep, I like using this phrase, we need to keep pilfering people from the enemy's camp, right? And encouraging them to trust in Christ. That's the essence of it. That's the, that's the spiritual battlefield that's going on constantly, Right? So the sixth faith attitude is this, is that people are looking, people are looking for, when he uses this word by having faith and a good conscience, that people are looking for leaders, and they're willing to follow leaders that walk in faith and are solid in their own conviction. That's where he was encouraging Timothy to go. Uh, Walk in faith, having faith and a good conscience. People are willing to follow leadership uh, that, that, that operates in that way. Not that, not that we have all the answers. If you think I have all the answers, uh, you're really misled. I probably have more questions than answers. I like staying in that category, right? It's a little more comfortable. But the reality is, is that in that is that we have to walk in faith. Your elder team here and your deacon team, your combined board, we still we have to walk in faith. And we need to walk in faith partly as a demonstration to you 
as we all battle together, as we all wage a good fight together, we still have to walk in faith. That's a good thing. We don't have all the answers, but we know who does. So we just simply just seek him. Our response is to seek him. But people will be willing to follow. And people are looking for truth. They're looking for leaders to follow that walk in faith and have solid conviction about, <clears throat> about what they believe. They're men like Joshua and Caleb. Of course, Joshua and Caleb were part of, uh, they were two of the 12 spies that were sent in to Canaan to, to kind of feel it out and see what was there and see what was needed uh, to see what the land was like. Joshua and Caleb come back, and in their report, and in the report of the group as a 12, it was a divided camp. It was two and ten. The ten guys operated in fear, and they went right to the people of Israel, and they said, can't do it, impossible. Too big, we're like midgets compared to them, blah, 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 the whole story, you can read about it, right? Joshua and Caleb were like, no, let's go do it, you know, immediately, like that was their encouragement, let's just go do it. They were operating in faith because they knew what God had said, where the other ten men were operating in fear, they were operating in uncertainty, they were operating in faith, and I'm curious, does anybody know, without opening your Bibles, does anybody know what one of those ten guys' name is? I didn't think so. They get lost in history. They get lost in, in, in the history. They're in the Bible. A little hint, you can go to Numbers 13. We read it while we were gone on vacation. <laughs> but you can go to Numbers 13, they're all listed. But everybody remembers Joshua and Caleb. Right? They're the type of men that people want to follow. Right? Not the type that operate out of fear. There will always be those types, type of ten spies categories. The forget, forgotten spies. And they died there in the wilderness for their unbelief. They're really similar to these two fellows that Paul lists here at the end of chapter 1. Hymenaeus and Alexander. These guys rejected the truth. They rejected the faith. And it says they have suffered shipwreck. That's the story of their lives. That's the story of faithlessness. We're kind of comparing, looking at these different faith attitudes. Here's one comparison that shows up. Faithlessness ends up in shipwreck. It ends up in disaster. You end up slammed up on the rocks, as it were. That's what a shipwreck looks like. Two years ago when we were on Molokai, we are out walking around and uh, <coughs> we got around to kind of the, 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 the southwest corner of the island. I mean, we're pretty close to there anyway where we're staying, but uh, a bunch of us went for this walk and there's just these massive boulders, you know, and you're kind of climbing up and over them. And <coughs> we kind of got up and over this super big rock and I looked down and I was like, ooh, what's that? Because... Everybody knows that when you go to the beach or when you go to the ocean, you have a tendency to collect things. Everybody likes to collect things. So I look down, there's all this stuff, and I'm like, ooh, that looks intriguing. Ooh, that looks like what used to be a boat. You know, and that's what it was. It was this, you know, skiff that had gotten slammed up on the rocks, and, and, and you couldn't find a piece, you know, 
as big as this podium. But there was just pieces everywhere. A little word picture, a little thought to go with what it looks like to be shipwrecked in our faith. You end up kind of, if you end up in that category, you end up kind of in pieces everywhere. Uh, It's pretty hard to bolt that back together. Not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying that that's the picture that Paul gives of this Hymenaeus and Alexander. They ended up shipwrecked because <clears throat> in their faith because they, tr- they traded what shouldn't have been traded away. They traded the truth for a lie. Rather than cling to the faith that they had in who Christ was and following his word, they went to the faithless camp and traded it all away. Largely to be forgotten, Paul says, I turned him over to Satan in hopes that uh, they would be delivered in hopes that they would repent. Uh, But these guys were in a tough spot. Don't go to the faithless camp. Stay in the faithful camp that Paul talks about himself. Stay in the camp. Stay in the lane. Stay in the zone of life where you're walking in faith and you're expressing in increasing measure attitudes of faithfulness, attitudes of faith in who God is, attitudes that Paul laid out here in his letter to Timothy, where he kept saying, keep going, son, keep going, son, keep going, keep believing in faith that God is going to do what only God can do, amen? Amen. If the kids want to come on up, we'll... uh